and welcome back to another Magnus and Marcus podcast on coaching. I'm Steve Magnus, the cross-country coach at the University of Houston, author of the upcoming book, Peak Performance. I'm joined, as always, by my buddy, my partner in crime, John Marcus, head coach of High Performance West. And number one hype man for the Peak Performance that, book. That's right. We're so gonna, we're gonna have if to... you haven't got it on your to-do list to buy it early June, go get it, pre-order it. Check it out. Download it. Audible. You name it. <laughs> there's, there's the plug for our sponsor, Steve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> our sponsor of this podcast is brought to you by me. Uh, <laughs> as I sit in the Holiday Inn in Austin, Texas, getting ready for um, some track meet. So, how are things going, John? Excellent. Cannot complain. Good. But... I can and will get on my high horse, as you know, um, we often do on this podcast. And the, currently, my high horse, in I believe it's also Steve's, is differentiating between the hocus pocus of these marginal gains concept um, presented by famously the Team Sky cycling um, outfit that is now coming under investigation for being completely fraudulent. Imagine and, that. Yes, the 1% rule, which a li- which this marginal gain concept was derived from. So, you know, here we're going to try to unpack and uncloud this kind of foggy area between marginal gains and doing these little things 1% better and the actual 1% rule and the immense value of accumulative advantage because – I think it got muddied there for a little while for a couple of years with all this hocus pocus that teams guy pos- um, tried to uh, pass as actual work being done, but was really just, Hey, we're not doing anything special. Yeah. It, you know, before we kind of dive in and um, find those two terms, I think it's, I, I think this is going to be a very interesting study on uh, human nature and how we, like to explain things and how we like to like create a story that makes us feel good about things and how it's a lot easier to, I don't know, after the fact, justify performances by saying like, oh yeah, like marginal gains, we got better pillows and mattress tops and that's what did it. So <laughs> why, why don't you uh, differentiate between marginal gains and the 1% rule? Well, the first thing is we need to, you know, agree or understand that we do not know everything. And even the knowledge we do possess is tentative. And that, you know, Steve and I keep going back to what is the scientific method. A lot of people think scientific method in science is, you know, this certainty and exactness that comes with mathematics. And while that's true for the case, it's a tentative certainty. And you can look at all of, like, say, you know, Newton's laws of physics, right? They were... They were laws. They were absolutes for a long time. And then, you know, the theory of relativity and quantum mechanics came in and all of a sudden it's like, hey, it's not absolute. It's a tentative knowledge. We still don't know, right, how consciousness exists in the human brain. That that's something we don't know anything about. And even other things are tentative. So the real test of knowledge is not whether it's true, but whether it emboldens or empowers us. And so this idea of marginal gains is this construction of knowledge or this construction of, hey, focus on all these marginal things on the fringes because 
those are the things that's going to help push us forward. Now, the 1% rule is a little, much different than that because the marginal gains theory or you know supposed theory was a bastardization of the 1% rule. And if you haven't, I would suggest checking out um, James Clear, uh, jamesclear.com, who it was the inspiration for this podcast with a article um, that he usually puts out one article a week on the 1% rule and why few people get most rewards in life. So if we look back, right, the uh, Pietro principle, which is essentially commonly known now as the 80-20 rule, says that, you know, 20% of whatever usually yields 80% of the return. So whether that's wealth, distribution, production, etc. So with that, though, you know, is understanding that inequality is everywhere. And that that is okay. Because I mean, he put in like, say, basketball terms and NBA terms, um, you know, two franchises, the Celtics and the Lakers have won almost half of the NBA championships. So you're going to have this robust inequality that exists. And what that is, is it's actually a reflection of years of accumulative advantage. Now, what's accumulative advantage? This goes back to evolution. This goes back to you know, uh, survival of the fittest. It's what starts off as like a small difference, a small bit of um, distinction, if reinforced over time, can create a big chasm. And so this is this is not marginal gains, which is let's focus on washing our hands and sleeping on the latest mattress or wearing wool socks from you know, and wool alpaca blend socks from the finest purebreds in, you know, Siberia or whatever. That's not it. <laughs> what it is, is actually the 1% rule is about what you hear coaches say time and time again, mastery, execution of the fundamentals, because you want the fundamentals to be that thing that starts to create that separation between you and the other, you and the competition. And the fundamentals and mastering those allow you to automate these basic, you know, whether they're skill sets, uh, whether they're ways of movement, whether, you know, whatever they are, it, it's just on autopilot. And then you can get to the more theoretical and complex stuff. But because that 1% of the theoretical and complex is usually approached by pioneers or by giants of an industry, people assume like, oh, I need to just go from zero to that top echelon and then focus on mastering that top echelon without doing all the hard yards and the tough work in between to get to that really cool and exciting place where you get to dance on those fringes and where, yes, that 1% will make a big impact because you've exhausted and mastered every other fundamental that's out there that's possible. But there is no like hack here or shortchanging or gaming the system as is, you know, a lot of, you know, fools believe. And by fools, I mean, all of us are fools because when we ever believe something's absolute, we are, again, forgetting that all knowledge is tentative. And that's a very fundamental concept to grasp. And you don't want to get caught in fool's gold, you know, searching for fool's gold or the holy grail or, you know, the philosopher's stone. Because you're, you could spend a lifetime thinking it's true and thinking and going after it. But in reality, it, it is just a fairy tale. It is a complete fabrication. 
And that's what we're seeing. Marginal gains is just another, you know, you know, terminology for a philosopher's stone. This idea that, oh man, we're going to just have this magic elixir that, boom, all of a sudden it'll turn everything to gold that we touch. And that's not the case at all because the 1% rule is the very important uh, feast that the masters of craft for years and years and years have been working towards to get to. And you can't, you can't short circuit it. This isn't Neo in the Matrix where you just download, you know, all the art and technique and then you're like, I know Kung Fu. It's, <laughs> it's a very difficult thing to ascertain. All right. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, and, you know, if, if I was to simplify everything between the two dichotomies of marginal gains versus a 1% rule is a marginal gains kind of philosophy um, almost has this underlying assumption that every tiny little or every 1% um, matters to some degree. And so what happens you get is you get caught up in this minutia of what you talked about is, oh, like, let's wash our hands at this and use, you know, special pillows and special mattress. And, you know, um, in the case of Team Sky, like, lay down some rubber to put their bikes down or whatever it is. Like, it's all these little small things. And you're making these assumptions that all these little small things, like, mean something, A, translate into something significant, and, and B, that they, they kind of build on each, on each other. And, and I think that that assumption is often invalid. And I think if you look at the 1% rule, the way I like to view it is, is almost like a compounding interest rule, and then like fundamentals and connection. And going through those two things is, if you think of compounding interest, if you know anything about investing, you know, your returns are going to be much higher generally if you start investing at 20 than if you start investing at 40, right? It's just every year your gains compound and all that stuff and you just build and build and build. It's like investing 101. Well, it, the same thing happens if you master the fundamentals early and keep building upon that is... What that does is that expands the horizon for uh, for where you can build upon it. And, and the way I like to look at that is the more we master fundamentals, the more um, the more we have the ability to connect that to all the small, sexy stuff that that everyone wants to do. So the bigger the fundamental um, capacity is, the bigger bang for our buck we get when we add in the small things right and i think when i look at those things that that's how i clearly differentiate it and i think it gets confused because everyone thinks like oh the little things matter and or the one percent that's what we should worry about and i think in actuality what we're saying are is are are completely opposite things as one 1% rule in your terms, the fundamentals carry you and allow the 1% to matter. Right. And, you know, we live in sport and more and more in the world in a kind of winner takes all, you know, society where the difference between winning a gold medal and not the difference between making an Olympic team and not is for a lot of athletes and even coaches is being able to sustain themselves financially in the sport and in their discipline for years to come. Versus if you make that, but that half second, if you're an 800 mirror, 
that you got fourth place or fifth place and didn't make an Olympic team, you might, you know, hang the spikes up and that's all she wrote. So, you know, there's this compelling need to find the, the you know, the magic star stardust. But yes, the 1% rule, you know, is a very critical and valuable rule to understand. And it states that over time, the majority of awards in a given field will accumulate to the people teams, organizations that maintain a 1% advantage over the alternatives. So you don't need to be twice as good to get twice the results. You just need to be slightly better, but then slightly better the next day and slightly better. And so when you're working on whatever fundamental skill you have in your catalog, you just need to get slightly better because as Steve said, investing and statistics is really kind of a critical um, discipline to understand, not just from the X's and O's, but in a historical context, right? Because up and until that point, before statistics was created in Scotland way back when, um, people believed that everything that we needed to know was already known. So you just, you know, you asked a priest because, you know, it was a, for a long time, heavy theologic society where, you know, we believed in the books, um, in the geo-Christian sense. And those were absolute truths. All the knowledge that you needed to know about the world was in, you know, your holy book. And up until mathematics came around, mathematics gave a more exactitude for us to see, wait, all of this is actually tentative. Because if you asked a holy priest or something, oh, how, how does a spider weave, you know, their web? They would just say, well, it's not in the Bible, so, you know, it doesn't really matter. God doesn't really want us to know that, so don't worry about those things. <laughs> but what statistics allow us to do is to realize the impact of how things can compound and apply those learnings and that structure to not just financial models, but to all over the world. And then all of a sudden you've seen in the last 500 years of human civilization an exponential increase in just you know, society in general, from an industrial, scientific, technological revolutions, large part due to the influence of math and statistics. So this is tough because you start talking about statistics and people's eyes gloss over like, oh boy, <laughs> you know, because it is some still very opaque. And remember, mathematics was a marginalized study about five, 400 years ago. It was something that was off to the side. More we invested in rhetoric and logic. And now we've inverted that because there's a significant advantage to be gained by understanding how this 1% rule compounds itself over time and creates, you know, what we call, or we're calling here the, um, you know, accumulative advantage. And so it's like, what fundamentals do you focus on? And that, that's the key. I always, I tell people more than any, or athletes more and more worry about the right things. Like we worry so much about all these things. And that's, I think where this dichotomy of the marginal gains, you know, can leave us off course is you can worry about the wrong things. What are the wrong things? I can't tell you that, but it depends what your situation is, who you're working with, or, you know, what your priorities are. Because for me, one of the wrong things with my athletes is worrying about hitting a weekly mileage goal. That is a wrong thing in our world. It's, it's a thing but we don't worry about it. It happens. And it happens because we're more micro and we focus on the day to day. Now, these are, you know, elites and adults and, you know, very, you know, cognitively aware of their, you know, how their body's feeling. And so we get this kind of daily feedback mechanism built in and we can make adjustments in real time. Now, for some other people, like say in high school, as I've always said, 
weekly minds goals is an important thing because you're teaching these kids to show up and do the work. So you got to run these weekly minds because we need you to run every single day or five times a week rather than just when you feel like it or take a break and go to McDonald's or 7-Eleven and get a Slurpee. So, <laughs> you know, that those are those are very critical things because once you decide what your fundamentals are, then you have to get to a point where like you're enjoying getting slightly better at them every day. And then you're getting that confidence and that knowledge that you're getting better at them every day because that belief will then empower you to feel like you're better overall. So, you know, it's the, the margin now in this day and age between good and great is very, very narrow, you know, and, I think it's a nice fable and story to say, hey, if we focus on all these tertiary things and yeah, we'll we'll do some fundamental stuff, but we'll also focus hyper on these tertiary things. It's this money ball effect that like, oh, we know the secret. We know the secret. Well, it's, you know, again, it's a blend. We're not saying, okay, throw out all these marginal gain things completely, but, you know, you have to decide in your training program or in your training philosophy or in your preparation philosophy the desired impact that these marginal things should have should create or you want to create and then how much time and energy can you really invest because whatever you're investing in those things is going to detract from your ability to invest in the fundamentals and unless you've mastered those fundamentals to a point where it is on autopilot you know I, I would say you need to take a really hard look in the mirror and ask yourself okay will this marginal gain make me significantly better and, you know, nine times out of 10, the fundamental and, you know, harnessing, sanding, continuing to sculpt is going to be from my, you know, path of experience from a mentors, you know, wise counsel, the thing that makes you significantly better over the long haul. Yeah. And I, I think you hit the nail on the head there is that like asking at what actually matters. And I think that that's like just as a coach or, you know, in your work and your teaching, whatever it is you do as your job or your hobby, I think it's really important to step back every once in a while and ask, does this actually matter and what actually matters for accomplishing what I'm trying to do? And at the end of, at the end of the every year, like I take time to break down a different concept and say, all right, what actually matters? Like last year I broke down, um, I broke down workout creation. So I said, all right, here's all the workout. Here's, here's the way I can create workouts. Now I'm going to, I'm just going to break it down, list down every way I can possibly, you know, manipulate a workout, increase speed, you know, rest, volume, density, all these different things. Right. And then I, I broke it all down. So I had like, God, I don't know, 50 different things written on my, my whiteboard at home. And then I go back and said, all right, like this is overly complex. What are the biggest bang for my buck? What are, what are the ones that actually matter and give me like the desired effect? And then it narrows down to a handful of things. And then I'm like, all right, these are the things I'm going to focus on. And when do I need to focus on them? Well, it depends on what the desired effect is. So it, it's like doing that for whatever process you're doing is just break it down and decide what actually matters versus going through this, this like um, mind numbing where you just kind of do it because you've always, always done it. And I, I think the, the other part of that um, that you've mentioned is when, when you get the fundamentals down, 
you go into what what you describe as like an autopilot mode. And I think if you look at how if you look at brain research, for example, on how people perform skills, right? And how the best elite at anything from chess players to athletes to musicians, how they do things is they've nailed the fundamentals so much that it just becomes automatic, right? And whatever they have ingrained is what they will do. And what that allows them to do is not worry, not take up like this brain space to worry about the 90% of things that, that get them there. And instead, it, it enables them to unlock this, you know, creativity to experiment with the last 5 to 10%. And, and the key to getting there is being able to put yourself on autopilot mode and putting your, your brain to almost let things carry subconsciously. And I think that to do that, it just takes time. Yeah, so what what autopilot allows you to do is just kind of keep putting in the work and it allows you to to nail the things that need to be nailed and gives you that that freedom to explore the things that that allow you to reach the next level in performance. And I think, you know, in in talking to other people, other musicians, artists for the book, stuff like that, it's it's they're always concerned with all right, how often do I have to nail these fundamentals and when do I venture out and explore? And they always come back to, for instance, my drummer friend, he said, you know, I spend a lot of times like trying to stay focused in the moment, nailing the basics of drumming, even though I've done it for 15 years. And then, you know, as I keep nailing that and keep that there, then I get to have fun and do that exploring stuff that, um, that, you know, is the fun stuff. And I think it's the same in track. It's the same in coaching. It's the same in running is that most the majority of your time has to be spent on the fundamentals. And I think it's a very often repeated message and almost gets cliche to some degree. But, you know, if I'm looking at coaches and I'm saying, all right, we all know this, right? We all know like, oh, the basic stuff matters. Like, let's get this done. Like everyone says that, like, let's do it. But but why isn't it done more? And I think that the answer is simple. As as a coach, as you nail the fundamentals of coaching, that tends to go on autopilot too, right? And you have to actively remind yourself to to keep nailing the fundamentals instead of having that go on autopilot because you're trying to get that message across. Because it's really simple as a coach to be like, oh, like I know how to create a workout plan from my base to my training to my competition phase or like I know how to get kids to put in mileage and tempo runs and that's easy. Like I'm almost bored of that. So I need to explore something else. So as a coach, you start exploring something else and you forget that every year you have to go back to those things that got you good. And I think the things that got you good, the things that actually mattered, um, they become less, I don't know, less appealing because it's the same old, same old. It's on autopilot mode, but they got you good for a reason. So, but I always say, look, oxygen and water don't get old. Yeah, <laughs> you need them go. all the time, oxygen and water. And I think there's this idea that you need to be constantly innovating, and we need to create new training methodologies. And there's all these, you know, especially in the strength training world, man. You know, get it, you get out there, and it's like, okay, are you a Bosch person? Are you a tiered system? Are you Bondachuk? Because it's like there's some holy grail there 
And simply, what are the fundamentals? You know, you hear a lot of people say that. To me, one key fundamental is show up and do the work. That's it. I mean, what, whatever your work is, you can, you can, you know, get in a pissing match and argue about how much, how little, and, you know, play demigod on workout prescriptions and volume and intensity and density and this and that. Sure, that's fine. But, you know, to get back to Steve's point, that, that self-audit, that audit at the end of the year, that's critical because I, I do the same thing and we do it, you know, without, without, you know, without e- each other's influence. And to me, I went back and I was like, well, look, we had, you know, you're coaching really high level people who are some of the best at what they do. And yet they still didn't, you know, achieve their ultimate goal, which is make an Olympic team or make an Olympic final or, you know, this or that. And that's an audit anyone can do. Like, well, but we did the work. We were healthy. Everything went well. You know, there was no big hiccup. So what, why did that not happen? And, you know, it's not like you're the only one. There's, everyone's doing the work is showing up and going and putting in some type of work and is committed and excited and all, and thinks they're on the, the right track. But to me, it's also a belief factor. It is a certainty it is, a, I'm going to go do this and be excited, a certainty of excitement. And nine times out of 10, we get to a race where there is uncertainty. And Steve and I have talked about this many a times. And we've conditioned people on the model of this highly certain prescription plan. And you win workouts, yes, because you did what was written on a piece of paper to the capacity is asked of you. But it can, and more often than not, becomes a crutch. So, you know, the, the difficulty is saying, well, how do you prepare someone to have not just the physical tools, but also the mental, emotional, cognitive tools and the permission and the, you know, certainty of excitement to be like, whoa, this is awesome. I get to run against the best people in the world. This is exciting. Oh, my gosh. This is the Baba's here. Great. You know, Kiprop's here. Great. I mean, you know, I did a debrief with an athlete who just got back from World Cross Relays. And she was in the 2K and she was like, man, I got really real in the, you know, staging area right before the race when it was like, oh, there's the Baba. It's like, yep. And, the, you know, the response was, okay, how do I get there? You know, not to be the next Baba, not to be a reincarnation, but to get to that level of world class. And I think sometimes there's this blur about what is mastery and the fundamentals are you know, the path, the, the mundane chop wood carry water from the Zen Koan, everyday prescription to get to that level of mastery. Now, you know, we had a stark conversation, uh, you know, this gal and I, and I was like, well, look, you know, she was saying, you know, so all oh, these Olympians are good. And I go, I know a lot of Olympians who I wouldn't call world class because world class to me is a really special echelon. And you can, you know, take that down however many notches you want to whether it's you know top you know all state class you know all american class whatever but sometimes we get this narrative in our head where we we think these other people who are have these titles or these roles or who ran this mark or who won this championship or this race previously that they're on another level and sometimes yes they completely are and sometimes they're not because they're ordinary people. And, you know, the way you can internalize the value of the 1% rule is just be like, well, someone else has already gotten there and I want to get there. How do I get there? Is it this magic thing? Is it, 
you know, going, you know, going to altitude that now is like the most in vogue thing ever. Cause everyone's, everyone goes to altitude now. And I'm like, Whoa, <laughs> why didn't this happen? <laughs> I mean, people who I, that's another rant for another day, but, <laughs> um, we, sometimes we get caught up again, going back to things that don't matter and say, this is what really, really matters. And that's where you need to decipher. Is it a marginal gain? Or is it a 1% rule thing where if I get slightly better at this, the chasm between me and the opposition will get slowly wider and wider and wider and wider. And that's tough to decipher, really tough to decipher. And I have screwed up 99 times out of 100 decipher and chose wrong about what, what mattered. And But because of it, I'm getting a little bit better, I'd like to think, at deciding what doesn't matter and via via the negativa it's more easy to then decode or see clearly what does matter the best analogy i can give is you go you know training principles and how you prepare people it's like you go into this messy room and there's all you know there's clothes there's socks there's you know laptops technology toys whatever and it's just a mess and it's a wreck you can't maneuver around the room and as you're kind of, you know, picking up and cleaning up the room, you're deciding what things do I keep out on display? Where is their place? Do I put them away in, you know, the dresser drawer here in the closet? And then once the room's clean, it's much more easy to maneuver around. And because you have it more easy to maneuver around, when a mess does come in, when something that does not fit show up, you can say, oh, I got to discard this. I have to throw this away. But I think the hard part is the deciding what to put away and what to keep on display. And that's where you have to use your own internal compass, your depth of experience, other people's experiences, mentors input, your self-education, and then give it a test. You know, because that is science is saying, I have a theory, I'm gonna test it out, and does it work? And making sure, you know, the test it can be replicable. Person in person, athlete in athlete, you know, over the course of a season or a couple seasons or here and there. And then you can get a, a, you know, a hunch and continue to refine that 1% every season, maybe. And then over the course of 10, 20 years of coaching, you've created this competitive advantage because you tested this thing out that no one else was really about because they were so wedded to this or conforming to these, you know, quote unquote, irrefutable training principles. That then all of a sudden, whoa, this guy's good, or this you know, this gal's good, or this team is like lights out. How'd that happen? Well, it was just they got one percent better at this thing over time, and no one else did. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting when I step back and you know get to listen to you uh, ramble on a little bit, John, because. Uh, <laughs> It's the more, the longer I'm in this coaching thing, the more patterns you see and the more it is about like figuring out how to get a little bit better every day or every week or every year. Um, but, but more so like putting yourself and your ideas to that test. And I, I think if there's anything we're saying here, it's that put your ideas, your thoughts, your, athletes all that to to critical analysis and we're not saying like become obsessed or like go crazy over saying like oh is it better to warm up you know 15 minutes or 12 minutes like that that's not the point but the point is like 
ask the critical questions and ask like why and how and all those things. And I think what that does is it, it allows you to, what I would say is called zooming in and zooming out, right? We've talked about this a little bit, but where I think ideas like marginal gains go wrong is it zooms so far in that you lose common sense and all of a sudden you think that your pillow like matters to a high degree, right? Mm-hmm. And if or you, the the idea of yeah, it's worked out, and I have to get a certain amount of you know percentage and grams of protein and carbs within a window. Right. Otherwise, my body is going to completely pass out and, and not get the impact of the work I just did. It's like what? <laughs> instead of just instead of just simply thinking, all right, I just worked really hard. I should probably go eat something and make sure it's good. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, I mean that that'll get you that'll get you everything you need if you just think of that. Or if you're looking at sleep, if saying like, "Oh man, I'm working really hard. I should make sure I'm getting the rest I need." Right. Mm-hmm. And and I think like keeping that perspective is what we are trending towards losing nowadays because it doesn't the story doesn't sound as good. You know, the story sounds a lot better of, oh, man, look at this group. Look at these guys. They got really good. What did they do? Oh, they found some secret and they decided that taking this pill at this time or this juice at this time and this window was the key to do it, you know, Um, or the same with the overuse of those cryosauna things. Oh, yeah. Right now, you know. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay, this is this is the next key. And I know this is never going to stop because it's human nature. But if all you listeners, if you learn nothing else, I think it's sometimes to step back and be like, hey, wait a minute. What are we going crazy about now? And does mm-hmm. it really matter? Right. Does it really impact things? Not not can I create an elaborate justification for how it does? But does five years, ten years down the line, is this going to grow and accumulate and compound so that it matters a lot, right? right. So that it's it it's a staple in our program. And if I can't say that, if I can't say like, okay, this idea, this training concept, this periodization model, whatever it is, is has the potential to be a staple to translate into something that's going to be fundamental then why are we obsessing over it, right? And that's, I mean, the humility we all must keep in mind all the time is that we are all, you know, ignorant and, you know, not, not, and we have to admit our ignorance, our collective ignorance and then our own, you know, personal ignorance. And we want the certainty. We want the definitive. We want the, hey, this is how it is all the time because Rules and laws, you know, and truths are comforting because you you can have certainty in a very uncertain world about them. But once you have the humility to admit that all knowledge is tentative and all your knowledge is is tentative and that no concept or idea and theory is, you know, so sacred that it's beyond challenge, then you have an open mind and you can, you know, do what Steve's talking about. Take that step back and really be like, hmm, for a long time I thought this is really important and is it really that important? Or for a long time I didn't think this was important, but now I'm seeing that this is even more important than I thought because I was so focused on the wrong thing, I didn't realize the complexity and depth of the right thing. 
And, you know, that is that mindset is everything, because as I've evolved and been given new puzzles of, you know, higher level athletes, athletes who are, you know, doing it for professional for a living. I mean, again, the pressure is on because it's like it's a project that it has a certain due date for whatever race you're coming up to. And there's no like, hey, get them next time, kid. There's no like, oh, uh, can we, can we, you know, can we get, uh, can we turn it in a week later? You know, can we get an extension? Like it's not, it's not. like track season is always, you know, for any track coach, we know like there's a due date and people got to be ready to go. And if you're not ready to go, oof, you missed the boat. You got to wait a whole nother year. <laughs> so, you know, there, there creates some anxiety for sure. And that certainty fable becomes even more attractive in that in that mindset yeah uh, and, and just kind of piggybacking on that and and i think the mindset is incredibly important and sometimes i'm sure for you guys listening it can seem like oh john and steve are going on a rant again and going to go on you know a, a thousand different paths to get somewhere but the simple the simplicity of this message is the mindset that you get as a coach is what is gonna is it's gonna be the glasses that that you see the world through. And it's gonna be the lens you see the world through. And and what we're arguing here is that if you take you know this one percent rule versus this marginal gains view, is they will color that lens completely. And what I always say is like, what you give attention to is what you are going to value. So if I if I give attention to, if I become obsessed with the small. Uh, minutia, the getting something in, you know, drinking this amount of protein, this amount of carbs within 15 minutes of a workout or else I'm, I'm done for. If I pay attention to that, if I give all my focus to that, then that's where I'm going to put all my thought and value. That's where my athletes are going to put all my thought and value. And the next time they show up to a hotel and their pillow is off or their mattress doesn't feel good, they're going to obsess about that feeling bad and because that is what we have been trained to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. So, so the biggest thing for me is find the mindset you want to adapt and decide what to pay attention to. And it's really difficult to do. That's why Steve and I talk yes. about it a lot in a circular because we are still learning. We are still, you know, um, filtering ourselves. And you know, at the, what experience and what wisdom is, in my opinion, is it, it's understanding more and more and more what not to do. And the only way you can really ascertain that is by doing it and seeing its lack of impact. And then you're like, well, it's not really worth it. You know, because we do, going back to science and the brain, we know we only have a certain cognitive bandwidth. And when you get cognitively overloaded by so many things, you're just less effective you know, at everything. So that's why, you know, it is so important, like you're seeing, you know, now in the NBA, this whole back and forth about resting players and sleep and the league NBA is like, don't rest players because we're an entertainment industry. And, you know, teams are like, well, the performance in the playoffs are what matters. And we need these guys to be cognitively in tip top shape and physically. And we know that resting the brain is important, you know, so it's this tug of war. And that applies to all of us. If your bandwidth is so overloaded, and if you're working with a scholastic athlete who has classes or finals or, you know, ACT, SAT tests or GRE tests or whatever, you have to know, like, 
that you need to lighten the load on training. Or if you're working with a professional or semi-pro athlete who works full-time, works part-time, and they have a big project or, you know, grandma just died, like those other things, you're like, oh, that's a fundamental that I need to be cognizant of. I need to lighten the load. You know, I got wind of a story of a coach who like a kid, you know, went up to, you know, the north and she had like a friend's had a birthday and they had like an all-out bash and they're up all weekend and, you know, gets to track practice he tells him honest like hey just want to let you know i just did this and coach's like i don't care it's tuesday it's hard workout you're going like it's a punishment workout it's like dude really are we still do we still live in 1980s <laughs> like 70s like <laughs> you know because if you're going to just create those punishment sessions through physical activity you're sending you know a authoritative message and two, like there's a lot of dominoes that come off of that from a relationship standpoint, but also a physical and cognitive standpoint. Now, you don't need to go there and hyper overload the athlete with this information. It's simply like I was telling uh, like Tara Welling, you know, this morning we were on a run. She had a workout yesterday and, you know, there's been some neurological things going on with her leg and we've been sorting those out and it's been great and we're progressing, but I was watching her very closely in the entire session on the track, ready to cut her at any time when her stride looked off for more than a hundred meters. Like when it just stopped looking right, because there was no point to continue to do the work in my opinion, if she's forcing the issue, but then teaching this, you know, bad habit or flaring up this kind of like nerve issue that's going on. Like it, 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 to me, for a fundamental from my perspective, the value of doing another five to 10 minutes of tough aerobic work to like get her metabolism, you know, a little bit sharper, not worth the potential downslide for it. And so it's those kind of, you know, 1% type um, dialogues that you have with yourself about when to push or when to pull pull and those nuances are very difficult and steve and i read a lot we text each other articles and books and stuff and sometimes i'm like hey you know what this one's complete horseshit and he does the same or sometimes it's like hey this is awesome this really made me think but how you catalog it and then apply it is really critical too and i go back to you know michelangelo and the david you know when he went around looking for the piece of marble to carve david out of he was not saying okay how am i going to make David. It was simply he looked for the piece of marble that already had David in it. And then his job was easy. He just discarded everything that was not David. And voila, a masterpiece was created. But because he had it, his mentality, his approach in that regard, he could make this amazing sculpture from marble. Had it been the other way around, it might not have been the classic that has come to be. Man, that is deep. I, you know, it's it's funny. In a lecture the other day, I actually compared. Uh, without knowing you were gonna give or you give this example, I compared coaching to uh, to sculpting marble, and um, you know, seeing the vision you're trying to create and all that good stuff, and then discarding the pieces to mold it the way you want to. So it, it's an apt analogy for many things. And I think um, summing things up a little bit because I'm gonna have to to get off of here as as always john's uh the one who's going to push for more time and i apologize for that um but you know if if i could wrap things up at all i think i think the tendency of uh our society today is to focus on the things that um 
that might be able to differentiate our, ourselves. So it sounds good to be like, oh, I'm going to obsess over, you know, the type of uh, carbohydrate I'm going to eat or I'm going to obsess over, you know, the, the bed I'm going to sleep in or the, the blue light I'm going to avoid in getting sleep and all that stuff or obsess over, you know, having exacting warm-up drills at this exact time and done in this exact sequence to um, hit whatever priming effect I'm going to do. It, it It's society, it's societal, it's human nature to do that because we each want to have our own dif- differentiating point. We each want to have our thing that distinguishes us from someone else. Because, you know, it doesn't, you're not, you're never going to get articles written. You're never going to speak if you say, okay, like, well, I do, here's what I do, A, B, and C. And it's this, it's very similar to what Arthur Lydiard or Bill Bowerman or whoever did in the 1960s and 70s and only a little has changed. That, that doesn't sell, right? That doesn't give publicity. That doesn't, you know, mark you as an innovator. And I think um, a lot of times what happens is because of that, we we get pushed and pulled towards focusing and giving our attention to things that might matter a little bit, but because they're different, we throw a whole lot of importance on them. I think as a coach, your job is to always step back, have perspective, ask the key questions and decide what actually matters, what fundam- what is a fundamental and what is not, and what leads to performance gains over time versus saying, this is different, I'm going to try this, and just you know fall in love with the, the wrong ideas. Get so caught up, so zoomed in, that you think the small little minutia matters, while you're at the same time ignoring all the big stuff that actually has the largest effect. And that's why there's no substitute for coaching. You know, you have to have skin in the game. You have to keep doing the work, showing up every day. because You can't learn it from a lecture. You can't learn it from a slideshow. You can't learn it from a book. And you can't even learn it from a podcast. (laughs) Well, all we can do is help point you in the right direction to get you thinking a little differently and more critically. But I'll go back to, you know, a slide I saw on um, that really uh, on Twitter the other, about a week ago that really crystallized the truth about what a coach's role is. A coach, you know, we have what I call the, the coach's eye and it's a master's eye. And the coach knows or the master, whatever, the teacher, they know what good, quote unquote, looks like. And when you know what good looks like for whatever level you're in, for whatever agenda you have and whatever performance matrix or desired destination or goal you've set, when you know what good looks like, then you can enroll and enlist everyone else around you in the team and the athletes that you work with to fulfill their part in that behavior of doing what's good. Because then you can easily say this is good and this was what people like us do because we're trying to do this thing well and then you can easily decipher that negativa of saying this is not what we do this is not good and then that is kind of you know where everything you know originate originates from and you have to have that you know like steve said that 
concept and that vision in your mind like a sculptor about what is good. And then that is going to prioritize what your fundamentals are because they should all align in that basket of these are the things that are good and this is what good looks like and we all agree to this. And that is going to be the most helpful thing, I think, to take away about what the 1% rule really, really means is doing what's good and what good looks like slightly better every single day. Bam. Done. All right. That, that's, that sums things up for us. Thanks again for listening. And thanks to all you guys, uh, the original crew who reached out on Twitter and Facebook and email and stuff and let us know you've been listening since episode one. And really. Oh my goodness. It's been awesome. Yes. Thank you. I've been so flattered and honored. And it's like, it's a privilege. Steve and I thought we were happy if like, you know, two people listen. So thank you. <laughs> I know it's it's a nice reminder to keep us to keep keep bringing this hard because you know in in our uh, since this pod podcast is now sponsored by the Peak Performance Book. Um, <laughs> yes, we got to keep our sponsors happy. We, we got to keep giving we, the people what they want that, on a regular basis. That's that's right. That's right. So. It's guaranteed. Our our podcast is now guaranteed through June, thanks to our new sponsorship <laughs> that we picked up. <laughs> oh, awesome! So, so um, yeah, keep reaching out. We appreciate all the feedback. It really does help. It really does keep us cranking these things out. Um, because if we bring value, then we will keep them going. Because that that is what we're trying to do: bring value and figure things out as coaches ourselves. So, thanks for listening, yeah. guys. We're just trying to help. And we're grateful for everyone who listens and grateful for all the feedback and grateful for the people, too, who challenge us and make us, you know, continue on our experimental journey of figuring out what we're trying to figure out.